the only way to enforce Bitcoin's decentralized nature, I shouldn't say the only way, like there are there are five or six arguably constituencies of consensus in Bitcoin. But one of them, and the most lowest hanging fruit that an average person can take is to run a node. It's node count. It's just, is the system itself spread out enough such that there's no central point of, of attack or failure? So we view ourselves as supporting infrastructure for Bitcoin. But more than that, right? Like if Bitcoin succeeds, that's a means to an end. It's not like Bitcoin defeating the fiat banking system is the end of the game. That is a necessary boss that has to be defeated for the end game, which is human liberty <laughs> and generalized prosperity, right? Like that's the goal here is to create a society that minimizes poverty, maximizes affluence, and holds freedom as an absolute. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Today we had a conversation with Matt Hill, CEO of Start9 Labs. Full disclosure here, we are sponsored by Start9. But that is because we were so impressed by their ethos and what they're building that we asked them if they would be interested in sponsoring us. This is no bullshit. Start9 is on a mission to free the world from the hostage situation the big tech has us in. If your data is stored at Google, Apple, Amazon, wherever, you are vulnerable to a range of negative outcomes. Your data is valuable and they are extracting maximum value from it. These companies are not evil, but they have the ability to be. In a world where it is now obvious that Twitter previously colluded with the government to censor discussion, do you want to put yourself in a position to be vulnerable? Our answer is a resounding no. We are adults and we can handle our own data. Matt is clearly passionate about this, and he is putting in the work to enable all of us non-tech savvy individuals to break the chains cast onto us by big tech and opt out of their system. Start9 is building sovereign server systems that will allow all of us to control and own our own data. This is not an all or nothing proposition. Just start taking meaningful steps to opt out of the system. Speaking of opting out, we believe that it is imperative that you get your Bitcoin off of exchanges as soon as possible. CoinKite has options to help you take sovereign control over your Bitcoin. You can grab yourself a tap signer and let me tell you, the tap signer paired with Nunchuck is an incredible experience that allows you to take total control over your Bitcoin. If you are storing a large amount of Bitcoin for the longer term, we would highly recommend that you use a cold card Mark IV. The Mark IV is the best of both worlds. You can choose to use NFC with your phone and have a convenient cold storage setup. Or you can go full tinfoil hat, destroy the NFC chip, and air gap every transaction using an SD card. No matter your stance on convenience versus security, the Mark IV has you covered. Use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Matt, welcome to the show. We're going to deep dive on you. 
right off the bat here. So I was thinking about, I listened to you on Guy Swan and you had brought up the, you know, Atlas Shrugged, Randian objectivism philosophy. And I was thinking about that last night and I was thinking about how similar it is, you know, Satoshi's is to John Galt in a lot of ways. You've got this mysterious and unknown person who is peacefully hollowing out a corrupt system and allowing true capitalism to flourish in an unbridled manner. It is, it's kind of poetic to actually think about if you've read the book and if you haven't, it's called Atlas Shrugged. We recommend you do it. What are your thoughts on that? Like what's, what's give us some ruminations on the whole John Galt Satoshi contrivance. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised that this hasn't actually come up more mm, uh, yeah. in the past years, you know, since I've been involved in Bitcoin for me, it always just kind of seemed obvious uh, that Bitcoin is an opting out technology, right? It's not an aggressive technology. It's just you being like, this thing is corrupt and I'm going to leave for your own benefit, right? But at the same right. time, that process of opting out is an offensive uh, weapon of sorts um, against the, the very thing that you're trying to uh, get away from, which mm. then leads to a snowball effect where more and more people want to get out because the more people that leave, the worse it gets. And then the more you want to leave. And, and so it, it, this like inevitable kind of collapse. Um, and I've also thought over the years that when this comes true, they're going to blame Bitcoin. Yeah. They're going to be like, well, <laughs> if it wasn't for this off ramp, nobody would have been able to leave and everything would have been fine. But because there was a way to leave, everyone left and then the thing collapsed. So it's that thing's fault. Right, exactly. Um, that's going to be that's going to be how this this plays out. But um, we all know that this thing was doomed anyway uh, and that Bitcoin, you know, may have expedited the process, but saved many people in the in the process as well. So um, I fully believe that if Ayn Rand were alive today or even if she were alive uh, in the 90s, um, would have been, you know, a, a, a cypherpunk uh, and eventually a Bitcoiner. Um, you know, she was a gold bug, right. sound money advocate. Um, and with the technologies of the time, that made a lot of sense. Um, gold was the optimal money of the 20th century, even if represented by physical notes so that they could be carried around as long as those notes could be redeemed for gold uh, at any time. Um, so yeah, I believe Bitcoin is the ultimate opt-out technology for the existing financial monetary fiat system. Um, and that opting out more broadly is the ideal means of effecting radical, uh, mega political change in this world. Because, um, if you resort to more, we'll call it traditional means of revolution, um, you're really playing, uh, their game. You're fighting fire with fire. And, um, they have bigger fire. <laughs> they, yeah. they have, uh, they're better at politics um, and traditional warfare than we are. Um, yeah. And so um, we need to resort to the ultimate tool, uh, is, which is just not to feed the beast. Um, and and that's, that'll do it. it. Takes time and it might be painful along the way, but it'll work. I think one area, Matt, that you've already inspired us is that. Bitcoin's a magnificent tool, but it doesn't stop with Bitcoin. And Bitcoin in and of itself, the base layer protocol of Bitcoin, is not even close to enough to mitigate the onslaught of wayward incentives that exist in the digital age. And I've heard you kind of, you know, we, we touched on this just now and we'll get into it more through this hour, but 
sort of the way we win the ethos of your company, what you're building is the opportunity to opt out from the current system. But to have that opportunity, you need tools. You need to build infrastructure, right? That's viable for people to do so because the way the world works, the conveniences that currently exist are so beholden on the existing centralized version of the internet that we have. We're going to unpack a lot of this. What I want to do though, is for people that don't know who you are, don't know what Start9 is, let's get a little background there. And before you do so, I want to say to the audience, so we're partnered with you folks now, and we don't take that stuff lightly. And I guess as a manifestation of that, you didn't come to us. We came to you. Like we're at a point on this show where we get a, not we get approached regularly by all kinds of stuff. And we are so committed to only aligning with teams and groups and products and missions that we agree with. And so we're the ones that came to you and you folks felt like you wanted to, to partner and we're excited about it. Um, let's explore some of why we're excited about it. Who are you? What is Start9? little intro and then we'll we'll pick from there. Yeah, uh, you, there's three three things there, right? So one is uh, generalized opt-out technology and what that has anything to do with us. Um, two is what is Start9 and what are we all about? And three is our partnership. I'll actually start with the latter here, uh, which is that, you know, we are equally uh, excited to be partnered with you guys. Um, you know, there are two major fronts to this battle. Um, one is product and technology. It is equipping individuals with tools of sovereignty, um, you know, opt-out technology. Uh, and second is educating them about not only the products and technology itself, but about the, the historical implications, about the philosophy, um, you know, the, uh, the moral righteousness of it, like making sure that people understand that what they're doing is good, um, you know, and so that's education. So we view it as technology and education. And, you know, we do some education, obviously people come to us in our channels and we do our best. Uh, but ultimately we really have to rely on partners, um, like you guys and other podcasters and educators and influencers to, um, really carry the torch and, and grow our market for us. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, we just need more people who are, are, you know, demanding and willing to yeah. adopt uh, radical, sovereign, independent technology. Um, and then we will be there waiting for them with something that really works um, so that you're not you know, blowing steam and then they get to the end of the road and find a dead end. Um, we'll have something that works. So you know, for us, um, that's what we build is, is a, a technological tool to, for an individual or family or group of individuals to um, opt out of third-party uh, opt out of the third-party computing paradigm, um, and what I mean by that is that you are able to using our products and technologies use computers um, for yourself and with one another in a way that does not involve trusted third parties at all. Um, it excludes the middleman, the middleman being um, big tech. Uh, software as a service, um, the man, right? Government, surveillance, et cetera. When you use a computer in today's world, um, it is entirely uh, intermediated and permissioned and custodied. Um, and I would like to explain what each of those mean. Yeah, please do. So they're not words. 
Um, intermediated means that there is somebody sitting between you and the things that you want to do, a middleman, a broker. Um, so when you and I text message, for instance, or when we use this call, right? Like this call is being uh, recorded on, a, it looks like Riverside. Um, Riverside is sitting in between us, right? We This is not me and you guys talking. This is us talking through a middleman. Now, the physical representation of this would be, let's say you're home at night with your spouse and you're having a conversation in your living room. Rather than talking to each other, it would be me turning to Apple and saying, hey, Apple, tell my wife I said hi. And then her saying, hey, Apple, you know, tell, right. tell him I said hi back. Mm -hmm. And you're literally just talking through Apple or Google or Microsoft. Um, and if those employees were sitting in your living room, it would be a lot less acceptable. The reason mm -hmm. why people have accepted this is because it is uh, not obvious. It is obfuscated. Right. It's not clear that every time you use your cell phone or your laptop to talk to somebody, that you're actually just passing messages, For messages sure. through a messenger. And that's what I mean by intermediated. Um, secondly, it's permissioned, meaning all of these things that you want to do, whether it's talk to somebody else, post on social media, store a photo, uh, in the cloud, whatever it is, pretty much anything you want to do with your computer is permissioned. Um, you are asking permission to do those things implicitly every time you go to do them. And depending on who you are and where you are and what's happening in the political climates, you can be turned off at any time. We've seen this. Um, so if it's permissioned, permission can be denied. Uh, and that is just not an independent way of living. You are dependent mm. on these other people to let you do things. It's like being a child. Yep. Um, asking your parents for for every little thing. Uh, and then lastly, it's custodied. And that means that, you know, in the Bitcoin world, this should really resonate with people. It means that you're not holding the keys to the kingdom here. You're not holding the data. All the data is stored on somebody else's computer, right? We like to say the cloud is just somebody else's computer. And that seems to resonate with people. Um, because it is, right? You, you uh, send a text message, you take a picture, you have a, a you know, uh, some document you're working on, whatever it is, that data is physically stored somewhere. People forget that computers are physical. It's physically stored on a computer somewhere else in the world, buried in a bunker, controlled by people you don't know and mm. have no reason to trust. And they can do whatever they want with that data. It is not yours, not your server, not your data, not your keys, not your coins. They're the same thing. This is about property. It's about if, if you don't own it, right? Not possession, is, uh, you know, what, nine-tenths of the law, right? Whoever possesses yep. the thing owns it. Well, you don't possess your data. Somebody else does. So therefore, it's not really yours. So that is the current model of computing uh, as we see it, as it is, and as many people have not yet quite realized, right? They're, they haven't quite seen the matrix yet. Um, and unfortunately, this model of computing took hold very aggressively over the past couple of decades, right? It went from non-existent to the dominant way that humans and computers interact mm. in a matter of decades. And it is infrastructure at this point. It's actually critical infrastructure. So yeah. you can't just delete it. You can't just say, well, let's just not do that anymore wholesale because entire businesses and families and organizations and individuals' lives are dependent on these systems, um, I believe it was Morpheus in the Matrix that was like, you know, most people are so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Um, and this is what we're up against. We are up against both the system and the people who are dependent upon that system and fighting to protect it. Yeah. So this, the the thing here that really resonates for me, and I think this is the obvious answer for the reasoning behind all this, it's very convenient. 
when you get an iPhone or you get an Android phone, you've got this really easy access to your Apple ID when you just buy this two terabyte hard drive in the, in the cloud somewhere that just stores everything for you, does everything, holds your hand, and you really can't fuck it up in any real meaningful way. They're going to cover you. And that's in in contrast to the alternative in the past, which was I had to go get, you know, build a computer with a series of hard drives that back each other up. And if I wasn't tech savvy in any real way, it's very likely, or it's not very likely, but I could screw it up myself and lose all my photos of my kids or whatever else you're custodying uh, with your information that would be important to you. So it's this convenience thing. And it's kind of similar to custodying Bitcoin in a lot of ways. Like people are worried that they're going to screw up and lose their seed keys, just like they're worried they're going to screw up and erase their hard drives with all their critical information on it. But it, it, similarly to how Bitcoin has made this much easier through um, Nunchuck comes to mind. It's a very simple, very elegant uh, software wallet that you can use on your phone and you get your seed keys and you custody it all yourself. You guys at Start9 are developing software that is plug and play to make it simple for boneheads like firefighters to use our own stuff to back up all of our information. Yeah, we're the guinea pigs. I mean, that's why like already before we did anything formal, we kind of put you through the ringer. Like we had to be not just run it, but be really comfortable with it. And I think that's that's sort of how we view the entire space. Like if we can't set it up, then how is it going to be a workable opt-out solution in any regard? You know, and I, I know that some people that our full-time software engineers may scoff at that and say, but like, if you have a pulse on the average individual and the way people's time is limited, families, full-time jobs that have nothing to do with this, we have to create workable, viable, realistic solutions that average huckleberries can utilize. And if we don't, there's a lot at stake. There really is. It's not fun and games anymore. Um, yeah, I, I know a lot of software developers. I am one. And I don't know any that self-host all their own infrastructure. This isn't, uh, it's not just a technical barrier. It's a time, energy, and patience barrier. Even people who can have a totally sovereign, independent computing existence, uh, the vast majority um, do not, uh, at least not in full. Many use central service providers for all sorts of things. And it's for the exact reason that Josh mentioned, which is it's super convenient to do so. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, um, there's a lot of things that are really convenient as children. You know, <laughs> you don't have to do anything. <laughs> there are, dude. Hand you whatever you want. My two and a half year old's a complete degenerate. She gets yeah. fed, diaper changed, warm yeah. house, has no idea how. It's a it's a it's a lovely looking existence from my vantage point. Yeah, well, there's going to come a point where he starts to fight for independence uh, and he'll be willing to put up with some inconveniences yep. in order to be independent. It's part of the human process. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that it is um, natural for humans to be uh, dependent on others for their basic needs. And the more and more that digital infrastructure uh, becomes essential parts of our lives, the more human nature will fight to be in control of it, right? We don't want to depend on others for everything. That doesn't mean that you can't like go to the grocery store. Does that mean you're dependent on the grocery store for food because you don't grow, grow your own? 
No, there's a spectrum, right? Like it depends on your threat model. If if the grocery right. store was poisoning food and was constantly in shortages and was super expensive, then more people would grow their own food, right? So <laughs> ultimately, this comes down to society's function in this, um, we'll call it interdependent manner where specialization and you know division of labor is extremely important. You can't do everything as an individual. You can't be a car mechanic and grow your own food and administer your own server. You just don't have time to do it. So there's a certain degree to which you're going to rely on other people. However, tools act as leverage for the individual, right? Like say like you could snap your fingers and not have to do anything at all to be a car, mo- car mechanic and grow your own food, and it was strictly cheaper to do so, you'd probably do it, right? Yep. So it's everyone is making this internal calculation 24-7, 365 about these trade-offs, about cost and benefit analysis. They might not be doing it explicitly, but they at least feel it. They feel like something is worth it or they feel like something isn't worth it. Quite often they get it wrong um, because so many of the costs, and in this case, digital uh, you know, digital infrastructure, the costs were uh, indirect and non-apparent, right? Most people didn't realize how expensive it is to use Google and Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and all the other SaaS service providers as third-party digital service providers. They didn't realize how expensive it was. And even people listening right now be like, what do you mean? It's not expensive at all. I don't pay anything at all. You are, you're paying huge. You just don't see it yet. But it's coming, right? And those costs are fourfold. One is invasion of privacy, right? That is a cost. Huge cost. A monetary cost, but you are not private in many of these systems, even in systems that are end-to-end encrypted. I like to bring up Signal a lot because Signal is a lot of people's go-to sort of, you know, example of how to do private messaging and, you know, their recommendation. Even if... Signal is end-to-end encrypted, which you cannot prove that it is because you can't actually verify that the open source code they publish is the code that's actually running on your phone or on their servers. But even assuming that it is end-to-end encrypted, they still know who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, right? They know your entire communication graph. The metadata. Um, And maybe that's not a big deal. But maybe it is a big deal. It depends on who you are and where you are, yep. what the political climate is like. Just because it's fine today doesn't mean it's going to be fine tomorrow. And so privacy really doesn't exist in the third-party computing model uh, that we like to call cloud computing or software as a service. Those are the two most dominant terms. Um, so you're not private. That's one cost. The second cost is the um, potential of censorship. And we've seen this more and more. Uh, in recent years than we did in the 2000s and 2010s. It's becoming more prevalent. And I'm not just talking about like getting kicked off of Twitter type of censorship. I'm talking about churches, for example, getting deplatformed from Discord for having private conversations, private conversations Mm -hmm. that... um, that violated Discord's terms of service because they they were expressing hesitancy about vaccination. Okay, we've been contacted directly by multiple, multiple church organizations who said that they were kicked off of Discord because they had private group chats on Discord servers where they were discussing or at least, you know, speaking That's out crazy. against with each other against vaccines. They were kicked off of Discord. So Insane. Each other. This isn't like they were publishing it publicly either. This was a private conversation amongst church members 
saying that they might not want to get a vaccine and Discord kicked them off the platform. Crazy. So censorship is a real thing, even though it's not always just like, you know, public political speech being censored. It's also private speech that's being censored, oddly enough, because it's not on your computer. It's not in your house, right? Their house, their rules. You can't talk right. about things in their house. You got to talk about it in your own house. Um, the next one is cost, right? Flat out cost. Um, and many of these systems today are quote free, meaning there's some sort of free tier that you can operate on. Like you can use Telegram or you can use Google Cloud, uh, Google Drive or something for your data storage and you get up to you know N number of gigabytes for free. Um, well, what's happening is that because these uh, providers are no longer able to monetize your private data like they used to be able to, because they used to you know collect your data, sell it to advertisers, and more and more, that revenue stream is drying up because people are waking up to this practice and they're rejecting it. And ironically, lawmakers are making laws that pre prevent these data service providers from just, you know, blanket collecting your data and selling it out the back door. Um, those revenue streams are drying up. And so what we're seeing, we're already seeing, and we very much expect the trend to continue, is that the free tiers of these free software services are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, mm. less and less featureful. Yeah. And that the paid tiers are going to get steeper and steeper, um, such that within the next five to 10 years, we fully expect that almost every app you use on your phone or, or every website you log into and use for pretty much anything at all will in some way uh, be a monthly subscription, uh, some sort of paid. That's a um, nightmare. Paid the thing. And, and that we think is actually what is going to drive adoption more yes. than anything because we're no longer preaching ideology or philosophy. We're, we're talking it's tax. numbers now. People are going to feel that. It's like going to the grocery store and having a higher bill exponentially so. You're going to start thinking about starting a garden. Well, as software as a service and the cloud computing systems get more and more expensive, people are going to think about starting a server even though they may not have never heard what that is. And to be honest, in this whole podcast so far, we haven't even really talked about like what Start9 specifically has created and why, but it is that, it is a server. Um, so I'll round this out real quick with the last cost that has been there and has been hidden for all these years that is also becoming more prevalent along with the other three, which is this idea of third-party vulnerabilities. Okay, When you use a central service provider, um, they are holding not only your data, they're not only the intermediary, gatekeeper, and custodian of your data, they are the intermediator, gatekeeper, and custodian of everyone else's data, which makes them a massive honeypot for attackers, um, individuals, organizations, even nation states. Uh, it's like putting a giant bullseye. Uh, everyone is going to be after those servers because those servers are extremely valuable. And so I make the claim that um, there really are only two types of servers that matter. Uh, when I say servers that matter, I mean any server storing any kind of valuable uh, user data in, sig in significant quantity um, is either has been hacked or will be hacked. Um, there is, there's, no, there's nobody that will escape this. Any server with sufficient value on it will eventually be hacked. And I say that because I understand what hacking means, and a lot of people don't. 
a lot of people think that hacking is some sort of technological feat, that it's some sort of like, we're using advanced encryption technology and can't be hacked. There is no system that can't be hacked because every single system requires user access. Every mm. single system requires user access. If, if a user can't access the data, the data is worthless. So the very fact that you admit that a user can access it, then you must also admit that that user can be accessed. It's not the data that's accessed. It's the user who has access to the data. Right. And what I mean by accessed is, you know, threatened, bribed, blackmailed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it only takes one person with the right keys to become compromised and the entire system is had. We've seen this in multiple hacks. I believe Twitter was hacked two years ago and it was because somebody on the inside got compromised, probably blackmailed or bribed. And then there go the keys and there goes everybody's DMs. Um, yeah. So these are four costs. None of them are trivial. They're all very significant, massive costs that have actually been building. They're not like being paid in small amounts. It's like going out for a fancy dinner and just ordering and ordering and ordering. The bill comes at the end. It doesn't come throughout the meal. One giant bill comes at the end. And that's what we are doing as a society right now. We are drunken playing on these third-party servers without consideration of the consequences. And there's one giant bill coming due and it's going to be disastrous. Mm. Wow. There will be snakes in the nest. So build nests that snakes don't want to be in, um, which is far easier said than done. Uh, and it takes it a complete rewiring of how it's been so far. I got a question on that line, but we'll hold it because I want you to intro now. What the fuck is start nine? Um, start nine, uh, is me and my partners and team, um, officially we're a company, um, but we're a company with a mission and our goal is to make trusted third parties unnecessary in the human computer relationship. We are out to make it possible for everyone, not just highly technical people with tons of time on their hands who think this stuff is fun, but we're out to make it possible for absolutely everybody on this planet to interact with the computers in their lives, whether that is a cell phone, a laptop, a desktop, a camera, a thermostat, a doorbell, a robot, a drone, I don't care what it is. Our goal is to make it such that you can interact with these computers and that these computers can interact with each other in such a way that there are no third parties, trusted third parties involved in the transaction. What this enables at scale and in the future is for an individual, family, or organization to essentially have a fleet of computers and robots <laughs> that they truly, in both the possession and proprietary legal sense, own and control absolutely. No third parties, no, you know, uh, no wires back to the mothership. Um, yeah. And it eliminates all four of the costs that I just cited. Um, it doesn't mitigate them. It completely eliminates them when you own the computers in your life, own and control, absolutely. That is a massive undertaking because, as I mentioned earlier, the world doesn't work on that system mm. right now. The world works on a highly centralized, intermediated system of computing. And so, not only do you need new technology, to result in this vision I just out, laid out, but you also need strategy. You have to actually have a path to getting there. Um, and we have both, and we are executing on both 
for over three years now. And I think by any measure, um, we have made extraordinary progress in those three years. Um, and only in the last six months has it felt like we've really started to ramp up to get traction, uh, not just in the awareness um, sense, but also in our own product and technology. Like it is rapidly maturing at this point. And I think we're going to really surprise people at how quickly we can start to roll out these multi-device, you know, secure and reliable computing solutions over the coming years. It's going to happen faster than people think. Slower than they want, though. I've um, I've got a question for you because I think I think the most obvious thing that people need to back up often is their phone. And so like in my case, I'm using an iPhone and Apple locks this thing in every direction. Like you've, yeah. you're basically forced to use the iCloud if you want your stuff backed up. Is there any way for somebody to create third party software that can allow this thing to back up to say a server I have in my house, say an embassy server, like a, an embassy pro that you guys are producing? Is that even a possibility or does Apple own this so locked tight? that uh, there are no laws that make it are obliging them to f- to have to give the opportunity for other companies to be able to use your f- to back up all these photos that I have on it or all this information that I have. So that's a very nuanced question um, and un- unraveling in real time. What is Apple yeah. allowed to do? How closed can their system be? These are questions that are literally being asked in court cases right now. Um, Ultimately, Apple is one player, and they are actually uh, the smaller of the two uh, major OS operating systems. Android is actually more common worldwide than iOS is. Um, And we generally encourage people to use uh, Android-based phones, and even more specifically, things like Graphene or Calyx that are, you know, I was going to just ask about those Android phones. They're not super. They're not as usable, I should say, as, right. as like a stock Android. So it requires some, you know, some effort and lack of convenience. They are getting better. Um, but even Android devices in general, like getting a Pixel running stock Android is still going to give you a lot more power and control over your private systems than an, an iOS device will at the present time. This could change overnight, right? Um, we'll see how this plays out. Apple still gives you quite a bit. So, you know, we have multiple people on the team, uh, many people in the wild who connect to their embassies effectively from their iOS devices um, without compromise, without involving Apple in the transaction. Um, It just is not quite as smooth as as Android devices. Uh, One of the hardest things to do on either device, by the way, is this sort of background tasking, right? So, both Apple and Google grant enormous uh, favor and priority to their own cloud backup systems. Mm-hmm. So like even when your phone is uh, locked and you're not actively using it, um, Android and Apple can like sync data in the background. And they do this for your convenience so that you open the phone and everything is exactly the way it should be. They're doing background tasks. And they really um, prohibit third-party developers from doing background tasks. You can do almost anything you want in a foreground task. Like if the user is using an app, you can you can do anything you want. But once the user closes that app, and especially when they lock their phone, when the phone is in sleep mode, your app can't really do 
anything. It's really prohibited from, from doing anything. So when you say, could I back up the data or photos on my iPhone to my embassy? The answer is absolutely yes, but you're probably going to have to open an app and click a button. It's not just going to do it yeah. automatically. Oh my but, gosh. I have to open an app and click a button. That's exactly. That's where we're at. That's where we're at is, is we think, we think that not only have we, but we will continue to get the experience to the point where it's like, come on, if you're not willing to do that, like if you're not willing to sacrifice seconds, seconds of your time uh, in order to be totally private and independent and sovereign on, you know, in your digital life for you and your family and for all future generations, if you're not willing to do that, you probably don't deserve it. Um, yeah. Now, that said, we don't just hold this standard of like deal with it, you know, you know, be principled and deal with it. We know that if we don't make it extremely convenient, yes. people aren't going to do it. So mm -hmm. our battle day in and day out, that is our motive force. That's what we wake up thinking about every day is how can we make running and using a personal server for all your computing needs easier? That's yeah. our job. Do you like, so one way I think through your appeal and the model moving forward. And I, and I, I say this because this is what I've seen in myself. The Bitcoin community is big, it's growing, and it's only going to keep getting bigger. And there's a lot more people year over year that want to run Bitcoin nodes. So for those that are confused, like the nodes we run, our Bitcoin nodes are our embassy. They're run on embassy OS. Okay. So we have computers, we're running embassy OS. We spun up Bitcoin core full nodes via that. And I view that as sort of like a gateway drug because for me, like step one on this journey is running my own Bitcoin node, right? So that I can yep. verify my own Bitcoin transactions. But then once that node is spun up, now Dan is interested in doing all this other shit, right? Burn after reading, passwords, the list can go on and we'll get into some of these apps. Do you sort of view it the same way? And that is a a fairly large addressable market of people that want to run their own yeah. Bitcoin server. And then you're it's, providing all these upper, other opportunities. on. It's top effectively it. the gateway drug in order for you to start understanding the sovereignty involved, the, the sovereignty you can gain by running something as simple as a Raspberry Pi. Um, yep. I, at least I agree with you, Dan, that that has definitely been my experience as well. I needed something to give me the reason to have this little server running in the background and then realize, right. holy shit, there's a bunch of other things I can do with this that are additive to my life. Um, that is why we started where we started. Um, not only did Start9 come about uh, from us wanting to run our own Bitcoin and Lightning nodes and that being you know, time consuming, like we all can do it. Everyone in the founding team is perfectly capable of doing this You know, from command line on a raw Linux machine, but it was just like, it should be easier, you know, there. And we realized that there did not exist uh, an, a user friendly graphical operating system for running a personal server. Mm. That is like a, a, a lacking piece of computing infrastructure on earth. It's just not something anyone has gone through the trouble to build. And the reason that nobody has built something like that is because servers ever, at least for the past few decades, have always been thought of as like a, a corporate thing, like big companies run servers and then everyone else in the world just connects to those servers from clients. Right. And so the vast majority of effort in, you know, 
application development and operating system development has been placed on client devices, phones, laptops, desktops, things that are connecting to servers. And the servers haven't gotten much attention at all because there's these highly trained AWS professionals that are in there like, you know, on the command line doing it all. And they needed that, even these highly trained professionals, because there's so much to do. Like op running and maintaining a server is not easy. It is an extremely difficult thing to do uh, for anybody. And so it requires these, you know, CS, computer science degree, master's degree, you know, trained professionals who make a ton of money and administer giant server farms for big corporations. Um, that's who servers have been operated by. We are trying to push server technology to the masses. And in order to do that, we have to do the same thing that Apple and Microsoft did back in the 80s with personal computers. Because in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, using a personal computer was a super techie hobbyist endeavor. Mm. It was not easy to do. It, you basically had to be a dev and have tons of time on your hands. It's basically the same situation we're in today with servers. And then here comes you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and they're just like, no, nope, we're going to make using a personal computer available to everyone. Everyone is going to be able to use a personal computer. And the way that they did that is by inventing an operating system, a graphical user interface operating system, point click, mouse keyboard, point click, such that anybody could do it. And one of the big questions at the time that people were asking was, who the hell would want to do that? Who would <laughs> yep. want computer. <laughs> yeah. For what purpose? These what are they going to do with it? University things. These are government things. You don't need personal computers, right? Nobody could understand why an individual would want to use a personal computer. We laugh at that today. We laugh at it today. And today we're in a similar situation. Running a personal server is this highly esoteric, complicated thing that even technical people don't want to take the time to do because it's so hard to do. And we are sitting here saying, no, we're going to build a graphical user interface operating system that enables an average person to utilize, run and operate a personal server. And we're getting the same question. Who the hell would want to do that? Right. And our answer is not the same as the answer that was provided in the 1980s. You have very different reasons that you would want to run a personal computer versus why you'd want to run a personal server. And I predict that in 40 years, it's going to be laughable that people ever asked, why would an individual run a personal server? Because I just answered it. P invasion of privacy, censor censorship, cost, third-party hacks. You can brush those off if you want, but these are like massively threatening things to all of right, our lives yes. and they're getting it's, bigger and bigger by the week. It's one of those things where people just don't realize because it's not a physical thing. People are still stuck in this physical idea of things. Like if I, if you had a file cabinet in your house that was full of all of your most personal documents, mm. you would not be okay with that file cabinet getting moved out and put somewhere else where you don't even know where it is because you have, you have no idea who has access to it. You have no idea, you know, who's going to get a hold of it and how they could use it against you. But in the case of computers, because it's almost, it's so background to our everyday lives. It's so, it's such a fugazi. It doesn't really physically exist in our minds the way it actually does. And this data is just whisked away to some location in Kansas at a data farm somewhere that we just don't appreciate how valuable that information is because it just doesn't feel like it really exists in a way. I think that's the way a lot of people kind of see it or uh, it just is a less real thing because it doesn't actually exist on paper somewhere. It's such a very boomer. A, it's a very boomer thing, you know, such a great analogy. It's worth reiterating. 
And it's it's an example of why in that scenario where all where your personal file cabinet is at Google headquarters and they tell you it's okay. We we won't touch it. Well, if it's they locked. need to, if at some point in the future they need to, they will. It's that simple. Back to the incentives and what's what's enabled at the foundation. If it if it can be done, it will be done, which which you hinted at earlier. But I think for a lot of people that this is just a completely new concept, Josh, I totally agree. Bringing it back to the physical, thinking about the physical things that you want custody and 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 privacy in. The yeah. same thing is happening in the digital realm. We just it just doesn't feel as tangible. It's even there's a there's one more layer to this too that I've thought about. Like you know, people go on ancestry.com, they learn about their family history, they get these documents that existed a hundred years ago, and they're like, holy shit, it's all digitized now, it's all there. Imagine in 50 or 100 years when your ancestors can look up all your data. I mean, everything, all of your, all, all your website searches, everything is available to that person. And you're just laid out in the open. You are to be, a, you're a filleted fish of all the horrible crap that you looked at on the internet. You know what I mean? Like I, that is not something I'm too, I don't think anyone thinks that's palatable. Splayed open like a butchered hog. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> yeah. Dan, Google, Google does not claim that they don't look in your file cabinet. They openly admit that they look in your file cabinet. There have been many people recently posting uh, publicly on Twitter that they had stored some file on Google Drive or some MP3 video that was talking about like um, COVID and, and, right. and Google is putting messages being like, your file was removed because it contained information that violated our terms of service. They are absolutely looking at your private stuff. Where do you think Pornhub gets all these community videos from? I mean, they're just Google's just <laughs> yeah, uploading them straight yeah, to Pornhub. Yeah, <laughs> Google Photos, dude. Scary stuff though, like chills up your spine stuff. And and I know for some people that have been privy to this and thinking about this for years, which is a lot of the Bitcoin community, this is going to be like duh. But you have to picture like at some point you're going to be on the wrong side of the power players, like. It, it, whether it's the left or the right in control, whatever trajectory goes forward, at some point, your worldview, your convictions, your viewpoint is going to end up yours or your your kids or their kids are going to end up on the wrong side of the power players if we keep going through this trajectory. Like people on the left, and this could go for, we could substitute the words here. People on the left clamoring for people on the right to be censored should be just as afraid of censorship when people on the right take over and they get censored on the left, not to make this political. But right. the, the whole point is back to first principled thinking about this is a problem that this can be done in the first place, right? And that can be the individual with your files and privacy. That can be big tech and, and the way social media and communication in our species are, are interacting. But it's, it's scary stuff that we've gotten here. I wanted to double back. This is back to the previous conversation, but I jotted down a note and maybe this is a big ask, but I did want to go back to some like internet digital age history here and have you walk through like, when did things go south, right? Because right now we have open source protocols at the base that are, as we've established, tremendously centralized on higher layers. SMTP is a great example, right? That protocol in and of itself looks fine and good, but then you think about the way email works today and how centralized it is it? It's a scary thing. How did we get to this point, going back to some history, and then what what can we learn from that so we're not doomed to repeat it again, say, on the Bitcoin protocol? Okay, so look, 
computers, personal computers, have been around really for about 40 years in any real usable sense, okay? And even then, mainstream adoption didn't take place until the 90s, um, early 90s, I would argue. And when you put that into the context of history, it's like a blip in the radar, right? Like when I was growing up, there weren't, we didn't, we maybe had like one computer and it would do word processing, right? There was no internet. There was no like, and now I'm, I'm only 36 years old and it's like, look at, it's science fiction, right? Like where yeah. we were 40 years ago and where we are now is you, people would just laugh at you if you told them about an iPhone in 1980. Mm -hmm. They'd laugh at you. It's crazy how far it's come. Um, and what's even more crazy that a lot of people don't realize is that there's this entire contingency, most of the world, and in, even more so the investing world, the people who are trying to like fund computing technology, they believe that it is it has stabilized, that we've reached the, the stable state of personal computing evolution, that we've sort of like, this is how it's going to be. I view the current state of cloud computing, which is the dominant form of computing on Earth, as an even more of a blip in the radar as personal computing itself. It is not here to stay. It was a short-term mistake that humanity at large made for very good reasons, by the way, right? Like it empowered us enormously to have the devices synced in real time from anywhere in the world and to communicate with each other is like an incredibly empowering yeah. paradigm. It's like magic. But we just sort of like, again, it's like kids going to the bar for the first time. You don't think about how many shots you're taking. You just, you're, you're going to get in trouble. Like we got ourselves in trouble here. The technology outran our understanding of the technology's implication on society. And we're in deep shit because of it. And we need to fix this so that we don't leave the legacy of a totalitarian computing paradigm for future generations mm. because it's going to result in a thousand year period of darkness if we do right like this is the gateway to totalitarianism is digital at this point yeah. it's mm. not physical anymore you yeah. can just turn people off you don't even need to fight them anymore couple buttons and they have no money, no ability to survive, no ability to drive. Wait till all the cars are electric and smart. Your car won't even move or it'll just drive you straight to jail, right? <laughs> like, and you won't be able to get out. It, it's a terrifying vision. And so anyway, to, to sort of go through how this happened, all right? So you have personal computers come about in earnest in the 1980s when people are really starting to be able to use them with, you know, early windows and like the Apple II. And these things were personal devices. That's why they were called personal computers, right? They were glorified calculators, essentially. They weren't networked at all. You could do word processing. You could play little games on them, uh, solitaire. You could, you know, um, you could literally do calculations on them. Um, and they were basically just a tool for your brain. They were just you with the processing power of a computer in certain respects. And that's why they took off is because it was this amazing tool. However, it was lonely. You were using your tool alone in your house, right? And humans are social beings. We wanted to connect to each other. So, you know, just like we use our brains to talk to each other, we wanted to use the tool for our brains to talk to each other. And so that's what happened next is you had the internet come around. Um, and the internet originally was, was not about interacting with each other as much as it was about sharing data. It's that I would put data up 
on a, on my server. And again, I almost said like on a public server, I was hosting data on my computer in my house and I gave other people access to it. So my computer was serving both as a client and a server, meaning we hadn't really busted computing into two categories at this point. Computers were computers and they were just networked together. And this is literally a peer to peer internet. That's how the first internet really was. And it didn't last for very long because what happened was it was difficult to do, right? Like it wasn't an easy thing to do. Just like using personal computers in the 60s and 70s wasn't easy. And then Windows and Apple uh, made it easy. When computers first began networking together, it also wasn't easy to join that network. So what happened was a few people stepped up. This is like America Online, Netscape Navigator, some of these early like internet browsers and um, we'll call it social tools like America Online where you could join and do instant messenger. Like AIM was a huge milestone Mm -hmm. in the evolution of networked computing where you didn't have to do it. Somebody else stood up a giant computer and was like, all right, this thing is going to just be a server. It's not going to, nobody's supposed to use this computer to chat. We're just going to let a bunch of other people use this computer to chat through their computers. And that's where the client server model was really born. And it resulted in today's tech giants, right? It resulted in today's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. everything from Google to Facebook. Uh, Apple is kind of its own beast because they mostly are a hardware company. But they're sort of unique in that. Most of the other companies are actually software-based. Um, and they just got big and powerful and kept giving away more and more free stuff um, with the promise that eventually they would make money out of it, right? The whole, the whole thing was like, we're just going to build this and let people use it. And then when they're totally dependent on it and they can't get out, then we'll like close, so we'll slam the door shut and squeeze them until they have nothing left. That's basically the Silicon Valley venture capital uh, model is, you know, let people in for free, get as many as you can in, get them hooked, get them dependent, and then squeeze the hell out of them forever. Um, and most companies never make it to that. Their valuations are driven by the promise, the prospect of eventually squeezing, but most never get to the squeezing point and they'll, they'll all just blow up. Like most altcoins will blow up. For example, it's because they never get to the actual point of being able to be useful. Um, it's all based on promise. And um, anyway, so cloud computing from basically, I'll call it the late 90s till now has reached its pinnacle. I believe that we are in the, the, the heyday of the third party custodial intermediated permissioned computing model. This is it. It's never going to get better than it is today. We've crossed the inflection point, And I believe the time of sovereign computing uh, is now. That, that we are about to see the fall of cloud computing and the rise of sovereign computing because it is the only model that makes sense for humanity in the long term if the goals of humanity are to be free and prosperous. Mm. And the reason why it is the only viable model, at least that anyone has thought of, is because it combines the best of both worlds from the first two computing revolutions, right? Both of which took place in a matter of decades. So I think this is also going to take a couple of decades. That's it. It's not going to take centuries. It's going to take decades. Yeah. And what it does is it gives us all the benefits of a networked computing model where we can store things in the cloud, where we can use devices all over the world, where we can talk to each other, where we can engage in communal ways. 
and get all this added tool for our brains and calculations. It's all the best of the first and second computing models, but without the loneliness and isolation of the first one and without the outsized hidden costs of freedom and independence of the second one. Um, I feel it has to happen, uh, meaning I don't believe it's de- historically determined to happen. We could do a thousand year period of totalitarianism, but like, I think it's important that we nail this because it really is the, yeah. the front line of the battle for humanity's future is really in control over information systems. Yeah, man. Um, <clears throat> I know this has definitely persuaded me to be more sovereign about my, how my computer stuff works here. Um, what are some actionable ways that people can, what basically what are some low hanging fruit that people can start attacking first? Like make this simple and understandable, uh, for people to make sure that number one, they're being private about how they communicate. They're being secure. Um, they're making themselves more difficult to be compromised than the average plebe. Um, because I think effectively when, let's just say you're trying to protect yourself from, the average, you know, phishing attack or the average um, hacker, quote unquote, as an individual, what are the what are the some of the first steps that you would recommend people take in order to protect themselves? Yeah, nice pivot too, because we we have been we've been a bit in the clouds here. Um, it it is very practical and very tangible what I'm talking about. It is not this big oh my god I don't even know what he's talking about. Like I have to change my life and the way I right. think. It's actually a very low hanging tangible thing. Uh, action steps that anyone and everyone can and should take. Um, you know, so Dan had mentioned earlier this gateway drug of Bitcoin, you know, and that's one, right, is running a Bitcoin node. Um, you know, f- especially for people listening to this show, they're here presumably because they're interested in Bitcoin, even if they don't fully grok it yet, um, they are interested in it. And, you know, just like the not your keys, not your coins. Um, not your node, not your code is an equally important adage in the space, which yeah. I think we invented that one. But like, I like that. If, if you are not running the node, you have no idea what code is running on the node. It could be anything, right? So if you are interfacing with the Bitcoin network through anything but your own node, you actually have no idea what the person who's running that node can see or do. Um, they can't steal your money. That's why you hold your own keys. Um, but running your own node is the way that you know that you are like, it's the only way to be a citizen of Bitcoin basically, right? Like holding keys doesn't make you a citizen. It makes you a beneficiary of the Bitcoin nation system. We'll call it right. But you're not a citizen. You you don't belong. Just quick interruption there. I've heard somebody compare this to like a saying gold. Like when you have your own node running, you are mm-hmm. a saying that Bitcoin yourself when it comes yeah. in and verifying the constituent parts of it and that it's all legitimate and that it's yours. Um, go on. Wait, while we're here, Matt, why an embassy node too? Before you go to the next step, feel yeah, free to absolutely. insert that here. So so what what a lot of people miss, and when I say people, I just I mean Bitcoiners, like even hardline Bitcoiners have been running their nodes for years and what a lot of people kind of miss is that Bitcoin's success, its viability, its very life depends on and implies an underlying decentralized computing infrastructure. Mm. Yeah. Okay? If Bitcoin could go the way of email, <laughs> it is yeah. possible For sure. that Bitcoin is the next email. Email is not a decentralized system. It is an open source 
decentralizable protocol, right? SMTP, the way the email is designed to work is in theory decentralized, but in practice, it is 100% captured and irrevocably so, actually. <laughs> email's dead, okay? The only reason that email is still being used at all is because it has become critical infrastructure for most every business and organization on this planet, which is a tragedy because it really is totally and 100% irrevocably captured. There's no way at this point, really, I mean, even for the most technical people on the planet, there's no real way to run your own email server effectively and use it to communicate with everyone else in the world. Everything will get black holed. You cannot run your own email server anymore. And there might come a day when you can't run your own Bitcoin node anymore. If we don't take precautions now to, to make sure that everyone is not only running their own node, but running it on infrastructure that cannot itself be centralized or captured. And thirdly, that they can administer that node, that they actually have the ability to like do things with it. That mm. it's not just some black box on the shelf that they do not understand. Yes. We have and that requires not only education, but product. It requires the product to be intuitive. And when I say the product, I mean whatever you're using to run your Bitcoin node, which brings it around to what you just said. Why embassy? Okay. What embassy OS does that no other full-blown or pseudo server operating system has ever done is it is designed to give the user control over the server, not to get the server running. The primary focus of other plug and play Bitcoin products, whether physical or just software, is to get the server running. It's basically like if you had a super technical friend who came over to your house, opened up your MacBook, and got on the command line and just started pounding keys in a way that you totally didn't understand. It was just installing things and doing things and opening menus and closing, blah, blah, blah. And then was like, done. Your MacBook is now a server. It's running a Bitcoin node. Everything's working. Peace. And they leave. <laughs> and then you're like, I'm doing it, guys. I'm running a Bitcoin node. <laughs> you have no ability to actually control, administer, or manage that node, let alone everything else it's running. If you have to do anything at all, you have to go do what your friend did. You now have to open the command line. You have to start editing things. And what are you going to do? You're going to call them. And what are they going to do? They're going to be like, I don't have time for you right now, which is exactly what our, I'll put it in quotes, competitors do is they're, they're here's the thing, you're on your own. And it makes you feel really good at first because it was so easy to get running but it's not actually giving you as a user control over the system. It would be like if the early Windows and Apple machines, like you turn them on and you could use the text editor, but there was no settings menu. There was no way to like install anything, uninstall anything, manage things, change things. And I'm not saying that no systems do anything. They do minimal things, right? But we are building this comprehensively, right? And from, from a holistic perspective, like we have designed an operating system that allows a totally non-technical person to not only set up and use a personal server, but to administer it in perpetuity. And that is a massive claim for anyone who understands what it takes to administer a personal server in perpetuity. Go ask a computer science, AWS trained corporate dev if it's easy or not. And they would be like, people can't do it. They would say that what we are attempting to do is impossible 
That's how hard it is, is that most highly trained people would say it's impossible. We disagree. We just disagree. We think that we can make it easy enough and that people are smart enough, we respect our customers, to do it. And what we have found over the last couple of years is the feedback from people who didn't think they could do it has been off the charts, okay? When when people set up their embassies, the vast majority of the initial response, most importantly, from people who were terrified to do it was, oh, wow, I I did it. Not only did I set it up, but I actually like understood what was going on. Like the product yeah. provides education in its very design um, because in large part, we copied Apple and Microsoft and Google. Like they, they have spent decades, decades refining graphical user interfaces to be optimized for average people to administer. They've just been doing it for client devices. So all we did was take all that R&D. We view Apple and Google them as our research department, okay? Historically speaking. Like all we're doing is learning from them and what they have done over the previous decades and applying it to the administration of a personal server. But it's not copy-paste. Servers and clients are very different. And they they have very different um, needs uh, from the user. So we are outright inventing things things that can't be copy pasted, yeah. but we're copy pasting whatever we can, right? We are, we are trying to make this feel familiar rather than like some alien technology. It yeah. should look and feel like a website. I want to just get back to the, some of the actionable advice to make things more secure for yourself. So like uh, you have an embassy pro, you're running something like vault warden. Um, go over just a bit about how you can have a password manager that is operating on your own sovereign computer that is disinter- disintermediating anyone else from that whole process of protecting your password systems through a myriad of different websites. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so first of all, password manager is really, really important uh, for people to, to use. If you're not using a password manager, you should be using one. Um, it is the only way to have long, complex, unique passwords for every website that you visit. There's no way to remember you know, 50 long, complex passwords. So you should be using a password manager. The next step to full independence and sovereignty is to use your own password manager. This means that the passwords themselves are stored on your own device. So with Embassy, Embassy OS, you can install a a password manager called Vault Warden. Um, It's easy to do. You go to the marketplace, you click Vault Warden, you click install, and a few seconds later, it's running on your device in your home. So this device is sitting right behind you, and it's just a computer sitting on your shelf and it's running Vault Warden because you clicked install. From that moment forward, you can use your laptop or your cell phone to access your Vault Warden website. So Vault Warden is running on your embassy, but it serves itself as a website. Just like if you were to go to you know, lastpass or onepass.com and log in, you can now go to your personal Vault Warden website and log in. It feels just like using any other website. It's not crazy weird tech. You just go to a website and you log in. The website, however, is not vaultwarden.com. It's gibberish, gibberish, gibberish dot onion or gibberish, gibberish, gibberish dot local, right? And right. I can explain a little bit more about what those mean in a bit. But basically, you are accessing a personal private website that you and only you knows exists in the first place. 
not only can nobody else access the website, meaning nobody else can log into it, nobody else even knows that it exists. It is right. a totally invisible private website that you and you alone can visit and log into. Once you log into it, you just create and save passwords, right? There's a browser extension and a mobile app that makes this seamless. You just, when you go to log into whatever website you're logging into, let's say it's Twitter, uh, you go to twitter.com, you click a button and your username and password will autofill. You can do 2FA uh, and you're logged in. And these passwords physically, physically live on the device in your home. And you can go anywhere in the world. I can go to the other side of the world, pull up my cell phone or my laptop and have immediate, secure, trustless, there's no third parties involved, access to my passwords. Nobody on earth knows that I'm doing this. Nobody on earth could stop me from doing this. Um, and it's completely encrypted. It's completely anonymous. It's completely private. And it feels at the end of the day, just like using a regular website. So it, you don't actually experience this super techie darkness as yeah. you're using it. It just feels like a normal website, but it's incredibly uh, sophisticated under the hood. That's something I'm definitely going to try. I, one other question about this. So I've heard this in the past, and I don't know if this is true. You would definitely be the guy to answer this. If I'm running a Bitcoin node on my embassy and then I install, say, Vault Warden and a few other, like maybe a mempool app or some other things, does security degrade with adding these other apps on there? Are you opening yourself up to any kind of security issues by having, a, say, a plethora of apps running on your server versus just Bitcoin Core and, say, Bitcoin Proxy in order to connect to, like, Sparrow? Are there any worries about that kind of thing? The, the very short answer, and then I'll expand, the very short answer to that is yes. There is an increased security vulnerability with every app that you install. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is because any service could be malware. Now, we go above and beyond in our system to try to isolate these services from one another so that if you were to install some malicious service, that it wouldn't have carte blanche access to all the other services on your system. But inherently, the right malware and the user being a little bit negligent could always sort of infect the rest of the system. Yeah, We will continue to harden our system through a permissioning uh, layer that is designed for 2023. Uh, similar to like when you install an app on your phone, it'll say, hey, can I have access to the camera? And the user has to say yes. Right. We're building something like that out. But even when that's built, again, malware is malware. It can do, it can wreak all sorts of havoc on your system. Let's so, uh, well, make yeah. the assumption. Uh, I'm just curious what malware could do in reference to like Bitcoin Core. So let's just say there is malware on it. What can that uh, bad actor do? Can they just view your transactions as you make them? How, what exactly yeah. can they affect? Yeah, they, they, they would have root access essentially to your Bitcoin node. Now they can't to steal your money. Right. So mm -hmm. that's the point of holding your own keys. Right. Um, in general, you don't want to store like the general rule of thumb when it comes to sort of digital security and operating a server is that you don't want to store things of enormous value unencrypted on a server. If right. they're encrypted, it m might be okay. So take like Vault Warden, for instance. If someone gets root access to your embassy, they do not get your passwords because the Vault Warden passwords are encrypted on the disk. Okay. So they would still have to know your master password for Vault Warden. 
But like a Bitcoin node, nothing's encrypted. Um, they could they could watch you broadcast transactions. They could watch you receive transactions. Um, root access to a server will always allow destructive actions. So even if somebody can't read your passwords, they could absolutely delete them. Okay. One other right? question which on is, this, which raises the importance of creating backups. When I when I installed uh, Embassy OS on my uh, computer and the whole did the whole thing did the security or the certificate. So is it, it's my understanding that that certificate basically encrypts information that goes from the embassy to my computer and vice versa. So that if somebody was sniffing my Wi-Fi, they would not have access to any of that information. And if that wasn't the case, they could potentially, if they had my Wi-Fi password, they would be able to intercept that information and see that transaction. Is that correct? Yes, not that transaction, not just that transaction. So if you are using a server on your LAN, let's just say from anywhere, okay? Let's just talk about encryption for a second here. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, this is some stuff wait. that like Dan and I, like we are, we've our toes dipped in the water, but we're certainly nowhere near experts. So it's good to hear the real it's, shit, you know? It's really good for people to have a baseline understanding of how the internet works and how computers talk to one another. I'm not talking about some CS degree low level stuff here. I'm just talking about like a general, like yeah. a lot of people kind of understand how a car runs and that's like a good thing because right. if it starts making a noise, you might be able to be like, that sounds like a transmission. Right. Even if you can't fix it, you should have a general idea of how it works. Okay. So we're not going to get too in the weeds here. I'll just provide a couple things that will probably get most people most of the way there. I'm going to give a high level of just why a certificate matters and you know how it works and what would happen if you didn't have it, for instance. Okay. So again, this is going to be the 101 explanation. I'm not going to get into the Yeah, I think that's exactly appropriate. Right okay. So when a computer reaches out to another computer to talk, right, that request for information is being sent over the internet. Okay. It's being sent over fiber optic cables or over the air. So anybody who is plugged into those things, into those cables or into that air, in this case, the, the Wi-Fi network on your home, for instance, can see it. There's... Nothing stopping them from seeing it. It's you're just it's like shouting in a room and expecting nobody to hear you. Yeah, right. We can hear you. Okay. Um, and so what encryption does is it makes a sound. They just can't hear what you're saying, right? So I can talk to you in a room, but it just sounds like gibberish. Yep. And in order to do that, the computer that I'm talking to has to be able to decrypt what I'm saying. Otherwise, they'll hear it as gibberish too. So that's where this certificate comes in, okay? So your embassy, getting real practical here, has a certificate. You can just think of this as a, a key, okay? It has a private key. Yep. And what it does is it tells you, the user, about the public key. It says, okay, then these keys are linked, all right? So it tells you about the public key. And then what you do is every time you ask for information from your embassy, and again, we don't even have to think about this as being on the local area network. This could be from anywhere in the world. This could be anywhere. I want information from my device. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for that information and I'm going to encrypt it with the public key that the server gave me. Okay? And I'm going to send it over the wire. The server can then decrypt that because they have the private key. Right? The server is then going to encrypt the response with its own key which I can then decrypt on the other side. So we can now talk to each other because we have two mm. pieces of information that nobody else in the world has. And 
if that weren't the case, everyone could just look at what me and the server were saying to each other. And this is very private stuff. We're talking about like plain text passwords. Okay. Like when you yeah. enter a password to log into a site, that password is being sent over the wire. The only reason that people can't see it is because it's in this encrypted package that nobody can open except for the server itself. So when you set up your embassy, one of the first things that we say to do is to download your embassy's public key certificate, save it onto your cell phone, your laptop, and we offer very simple instructions for how to do this. It only takes a few seconds to do. And from then on, you can have a private, secure conversation with your embassy such that even if somebody were listening on your Wi-Fi network uh, or there's a white van outside your house or whatever, <laughs> all they hear is noise. They don't actually see what you're saying. I believe, can't quote me 100% on this, I believe that we are the only system that does this, that every other node product out there uh, does not use encryption on the LAN. I know for a fact that Umbral does not, but I believe none of the others do too. So what that means is that I could go to your house. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> let's get real practical here. I come over there for dinner and I go, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? You know, because uh, I want to get on the internet and you give me your Wi-Fi password. I have the private keys to your LND node. I can take all your money. That's what Umbral does. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Also, while we're on that topic, set up guest networks in your house so that you have a different yes. network to give people. Yeah, yeah. guest network. Great practical that. tip. Yep. I, I want to let's pivot to hardware real quick because uh, individual sovereignty, running your own server, has compute needs, disk needs, etc. Um, what are those? We can then parlay into what is a Raspi useful for? When does the Embassy One fit? When does the Embassy Pro fit? What? what what do you recommend for someone getting into this and what are the compute hardware needs as someone embarks on this journey? Yeah, good question. Um, there's been a lot of pushback against Raspberry Pis lately. Um, we think the Pi is pretty good uh, for the price, right? Like it's a it's a really nice computing module, um, you know, single board computer. Uh, you can pick up an, you know, an eight gigabyte of RAM uh, Pi in theory, for $75. I believe they've been selling at about yeah. three times that. They have been. <laughs> the secondary yeah. market right now. But hopefully someday there's no longer a shortage. We are still buying them at that price. And so when you buy an Embassy One from us, um, you're actually probably getting it cheaper than you could if you put the pieces you together it, yourself. Yeah. Um, because we get this nice deal on buying Raspberry Pis in bulk. Um, I wonder if we are part of the shortage. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think we're meaningfully contributing to it, but we're probably a small piece. Um, so anyway, uh, Raspberry Pi is a very nice computer. Um, you just need to understand its limitations. It, it is not this beefy you know, server designed to service hundreds or thousands of people and you know, 80 concurrent processes. It's minimal. Um, it doesn't so, work for the church application you gave earlier. No, yeah, no. If you want lots of people to be using your server, you really need something more powerful than the Pi. Also, if you plan to just do a lot of heavy stuff yourself, you'll need something more powerful than the Pi. But we have uh, almost three years of real world usage statistics with the Raspberry Pi um, and can confidently say that it is pretty dang good, right? So I was running my embassy on a Raspberry Pi 8 gigabyte for over two years and was running over 20 services on it in parallel and it never hiccuped, right? It, it was like perfectly fine with that. 
Where it's not fine is if you are doing multiple heavy processes concurrently. So for instance, syncing Bitcoin while syncing ElectRS, while syncing LND. If you're doing all of these things at the same time, it's just going to grind to a halt. The whole system is going to crash. So if you get an Embassy One, which is based on a Raspberry Pi 8 gigabyte, we recommend that you sync Bitcoin by itself. Don't just install a bunch of stuff and hit start all at once. Right. You're operating on a Raspberry Pi. It's too much. Um, so sync Bitcoin. Then when Bitcoin's done, sync ElectRS. Then when ElectRS is done, now you can install everything else under the hood. Yep. Because the only two real hungry guys are Bitcoin and ElectRS. Everything else is pretty minimal. Mastodon is also a very hungry service. We don't actually recommend that anyone use Mastodon. <laughs> it's like we packaged it up because it's the only really kind of viable decentralized social media Twitter alternative. But I personally have been on there and quoted as saying Mastodon isn't going to happen. Uh, I stand by that. It's not going to happen. But it is an interesting sandbox and test. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So yeah, the Raspberry Pi is fine. But if you want to do a bunch of stuff, and you want to run 50 services when we have 50 services and you want to do them all at the same time and you want to serve 100 people, don't get a Raspberry Pi. It's going to be a bad time. You need something like the Embassy Pro or your own uh, beefy hardware. What other apps are you most pumped about? We've talked about a few, but beyond the gateway drug, what is what is the what are the other options that people can partake in that you think maybe is a good progression? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So quick side note too, um, and I've been fighting this. This might be a losing battle for me, but I'm going to keep fighting it at least until someone tells me to sit down uh, very aggressively. Um, we are desperately trying to get people to call these things services as opposed to apps. Mm. And the reason for that is because an app occupies a very specific place in everyone's brain, and it's always the button on your phone. An yeah. app is always like, yeah. it's it refers to client side software. Whereas we're talking about server side software here, which is a bit of a mind fuck, right? Like yeah. people don't really get the difference at first. So yeah, calling them by different names helps them create this category of like, okay, what is the difference between an app and a service, right? And the primary difference, the essential difference is that an app has a graphical user interface. It has buttons that you click it's a website, it's a native app on your iPhone or Android. It's designed to be used by you. That's the app. A service is something that's just running in the background, potentially connecting to other services on other computers in the background. It's more of a background process. Many of the things that we offer on the embassy today come with both. Like when you install Vault Warden, for instance, you get both the service that's running constantly in the background, but it also comes with its own app included mm. in the package that you can launch in a web browser. So it's both. But anyway, I just thought it's a good clarification because I might lose this. I might I might not be able to get people <laughs> to do this, but I'm trying. Um, all right. So you know, yeah, you, you asked basically what's next. What else can you can you do? Um, so, or uh, what's the, about, what the hierarchy? So you're talking to a, one of our coworkers that spins up an embassy one or, or has their Raspi running. They've got a node they've they're using vault warden. Maybe we're chatting on burn after reading and they're like, all right, what's, what, what should I peek at next? 
Yep. Um, so a real simple one is File Browser. File Browser is a really bare bones file server. It's like Dropbox or mm-hmm. Google Drive. It's really just like, hey, create folders, upload files, download files. You can share files with friends and family using links. Uh, you can give friends and family access to your file browser so that they can upload files and download files. You can set permissions, uh, you know, excluding them from certain folders, making other folders visible, giving them read access to some, write access to others. It's just a simple way to upload, download, and share files for yourself and people who need to see those files. It's an alternative to Dropbox, uh, iCloud, Google Drive, etc. It's not as featureful. You're not going to get all the bells and whistles that those things offer, but most people don't use those anyway. Most people upload and download files for storage. Um, So File Browser is a great way to get your documents off of Google. (laughs) Um, Mm. And then you had mentioned Burn After Reading. Burn After Reading is a really neat little service that we built ourselves. Um, It was a weekend project, actually. It was just something we thought was really cool. And it's essentially a secret sharing uh, service so that If I want to share some highly sensitive piece of information with you, like a password or a file, a contract, you name it, right? I just like, I want to Nudes with your wife. Great application. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, what shit's on Google, dude. It's not like real time chat. It's more of like um, the the analogy that I used to use in the metaphor is um, the old English nobleman or whatever who like receives a a note that has this like wax seal on it that proves it's from the right person and then opens it and reads it and burns it in the candle. Um, that's why it's called burn after reading is because that is the digital equivalent of what's happening. Um, the message you can prove is from the person you thought it was from. And then when you read it, it destroys it forever. It burns it provably from the server itself. So it's gone for all of history. So I could share a photo with you. You and you alone could open that photo and then it vanishes. It's like what Snapchat was supposed to be. I was just going to say that. Forever on the server. Snapchat that won't throw you under the bus. Yeah. And it's also, like I said, it's not designed for like real time communication. It's more like you really want to like wrap something up and send it. And then the person reads it and it's gone. Um, So it's a really great way. We use it internally actually quite a bit to share passwords with each other, to share like uh, redemption codes and stuff with our partners. God, that's badass. Things we don't want to leak into the internet. Um, And this is from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world. And similar as I said before, it's not just that nobody can read the messages. It's that nobody knows of the existence of this letter. The, the, The very existence that I'm even doing this is not known to anyone. Um, so it's actually kind of like crazy tech, right? It's like it's like dangerous tech if you think about it from a certain perspective. Like it allows people to share information from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world with impunity. Um, so anyway, so there's burn after reading. Um, another really, really powerful one that's a little bit more techy at the moment. So you kind of got to like, you know, get your boots on and be ready for a little bit of a challenge, but does work well is Synapse. Uh, Synapse is a matrix server. So you can think about like matrix as the protocol. Synapse is like the actual software that is utilizing that protocol or adhering to that protocol. And it's a chat app. It basically is like a combination of um, uh, Discord and Telegram and Slack. It's like you can create channels, you can do direct messages, um, it's just a group chat 
It's mm. a group chat service, an application. Um, but the server is running on your embassy and all the communications are flowing from everybody's phone and computer through the device in your home. So it is a way for communities to chat and interact with each other um, in such a way that those communications are completely invisible, end-to-end encrypted, um, and basically unstoppable. Uh, similar to yeah. Burn After Reading, except it's designed for real-time group communication rather than just one-off secret sharing. So yeah. cool. Uh, this is some really exciting stuff. awesome and relatively new is Ghost. Ghost is a, a blogging platform. Mm. So if you are a content creator and you have a blog that you maintain, uh, you are almost certainly running that blog on, you know, uh, Medium or Google yep. server. And which means if you say the wrong things, your blog will be taken down. Um, it means they control the subscriptions. You're paying them probably. They can delete your stuff. Again, it's subject to all the same issues that I mentioned earlier. Um, you can self-host a blog on your embassy, give the link to that blogger to a particular article to your friends, family, or followers online, and they can all view it. Um, currently, that is all still done. Everything I've mentioned, by the way, is all done over Tor at the moment, which is a huge wart in our system that we are solving next year. It's our big story for 2023 is to nail the remote connectivity challenge. Um and so for those of you who don't know what Tor is, it's it's a way of one computer reaching another computer on the internet from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world in a completely anonymous, encrypted way where you're not trusting anyone or divulging your identity. The drawback is that it's really slow and unreliable. Yeah. So it just kind of is like, yeah. goes back to the 1990s style of using the internet where you see a lot of spinners, a lot of loading spinners. Yeah. And it's just frustrating, but it does work. It's just slow. I, I'm basically going to regurgitate what you've said before, but basically the the current instantiation of embassy is perfect speed and convenience at home on your own network, slow, kind of archaic when you're on the go. And the goal you're you're hinting at is kind of creating maybe some slight compromises that give you a middle ground option, if I'm understanding you right. Yes, we also think that we can shrink those compromises to basically negligible okay. while retaining the uncompromising solution as part of the platform. So if you like really, really need to share something and you're like, yo, if anyone sees this, I'm going to die type of situation, yeah. you're not going to use even the slightest compromise. You're going to use the full-blown anonymous private solution, which is what we started with. We already built that one. Right. What we're doing now is we're making it increasingly performant and easy to use. Um, with very minimal trade-offs. Um, so those will be coming out uh, next year. So there's going to be multiple options for communicating with your device and for allowing others to communicate with your device, uh, depending on your specific needs and, and threat model. To switch gears a touch as we close out here, we started really broad in this episode and I want to end really broad. And I'm really, I would love to hear you kind of walk through what role Bitcoin plays in this digital renaissance, right? We've talked about the potential trajectories. One is very dark, one is very bright. What does the discovery of Bitcoin do for that bright future? 
like how significant is it in this evolution and in the building blocks to to create a more sovereign computing freedom filled privacy enabled future um i have always thought of bitcoin as the hero of the army right of and I, when i say hero i mean like the old school you know trojan war it's like hector or achilles right like bitcoin is the hope the inspiration and the only thing that can defeat the other mm. army's hero okay it's like we need bitcoin to win if bitcoin dies all the life is going to go out of the system the balloon is going to deflate bitcoin is critical um and the reason for that is because the other army's hero is the fiat banking system <laughs> it's it's the ability to create and control the distribution of money is the essential evil that plagues earth right now and is causing all of our symptoms poverty and all the rest is caused by this essential cancer and so bitcoin is taking that guy on but that doesn't mean that there aren't that there isn't a full war at stake here it's not just fiat money versus bitcoin i don't think our army can win if bitcoin doesn't defeat fiat money but i also don't think bitcoin can win without an army mm. and when i say an army i don't just mean people using bitcoin i mean what we're doing i mean what what not just us but anyone who is trying to build out decentralized information systems okay because bitcoin is a decentralized information application Bitcoin is a piece of software, all right? And it's backed by a bunch of users and infrastructure and miners and all the rest, right? But like I said earlier, if there's one giant Bitcoin node running on one server and everyone is using it, this is essentially email, okay? It's actually an oligarchy of servers, but there're very few. Then Bitcoin is actually a massive tool of oppression. Every transaction monitored, all money controlled, Bitcoin is the ultimate fiat currency if it's under the control if it gets co-opted okay yeah. 21 million dead in a week it'll be 10 times that right like the only way to enforce bitcoin's decentralized nature i shouldn't say the only way like there are there are five or six arguably constituencies of consensus in bitcoin but one of them and the most lowest hanging fruit that an average person can take is to run a node it's node count it's just is the system itself spread out enough such that there's no central point of of attack or failure so um we view ourselves as supporting infrastructure for bitcoin um but more than that right like if bitcoin succeeds that's a means to an end it's not like Bitcoin defeating the fiat banking system is the end of the game that is a necessary boss that has to be defeated for the end game which is human liberty <laughs> and generalized prosperity right yep. like that's the goal here is to create a society that minimizes poverty maximizes affluence and holds freedom as an absolute When I say that I'm speaking predominantly libertarian principles meaning freedom is to do whatever you want so long as you don't infringe upon somebody else's right. life liberty and property. That to me is the society we should be striving for. Some people might disagree. There's actually people out there who believe fully, probably because they're idiots, but that communism is like a good idea type yeah. of stuff, you know. Yeah. We disagree, they're not going to win, we get that. But we need technology on our side. 
it's not enough to ha- to be right. It's not enough to have the ideology. Yep. You've got to have the might to back it up. And Bitcoin is the first instance of a decentralized information system, consensus machine, the world has ever seen. Other than language itself, which I would argue is a decentralized information system. But it's not technological based. It's biological based. Bitcoin is the first technological decentralized information system that is viable at scale. And because of that, our brains have been blown. Our minds have been blown. We're like, oh my God, it can be done. Bitcoin showed us how to do decentralization. We just now need to hold it as an absolute, as a principle, and apply it to our entire digital infrastructure. If we do... I don't care how many people are shouting for control and totalitarianism. They won't they won't have the teeth. We'll just yep. laugh because we'll just be like come and take it. Come and take my you know what I mean? Like Yeah. You so, can't vote this away from me. Like we we need to obsolete the ability of the majority to vote away the rights of the minority. Absolutely. Yeah. And we can do that using technology, prim- primarily Bitcoin, but rounded out by things like what we're doing at Start9. And what you're describing is exactly what the founding fathers of this country intended, which is a republic with basic laws that cannot be taken away by a supermajority to, to you know, uh, put the minority under subservience in any way. But to round but this out... They, uh, uh, the way that they enforced that, though, right, their enforcement mechanism was a system of governance that had checks and balances as well as 2A in case anything got too out of hand. That was their enforcement mechanism. What we have seen is that that was insufficient. Mm -hmm. I believe that that the, the principle, the founding principles of this country did not have sufficient technological uh, advancements to enforce them. And so we've gradually seen them erode. Bitcoin changes that game. Yeah, it does. So to bring this full circle, John, I mean, Bitcoin is gulch gulch, you know, in a good way. You know, it's opting out of the system. And what you guys are building is a way to opt out in every other way of your life. Technologically, you're opting out with your data. You're opting out with your privacy. You're opting out um, peaceably in order to, you know, starve the beast, starve the technology companies of your data and starve the banking system of its money. I would argue that that's actually the secondary consequence. The primary reason that you should be opting out is because it's actually of benefit to you. It's not an it like the fact that it is also just you know starving the beast and ex- expediting its own demise and everyone else's liberation is a secondary consequence. You might elevate it as an individual to be your primary reason, but really it's simpler than that. Opting out is a benefit to you. It has been of benefit. Everyone who has used Bitcoin to opt out of the fiat banking system over the past 10 years has been very happy they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And people who opt out of big data over the next 10 years and avoid the invasion of privacy, censorship, hacks, and fees are going to be very happy they did as well. Okay. Opting yep. out benefits you. It also benefits the world. It's a win-win. And I don't think we've seen this situation before. Usually in the past, striking was hard yeah really hard like if you were if you and your coworkers were going on strike against a, an abusive employer or something like that who was you know taking advantage and you had to go like starve out you you like weren't making a wage you couldn't feed your family like crossing the picket line was this huge deal going on strike was extremely painful to you you did it as a necessary uh measure to affect 
political change or corporate change. But now we're in this win-win situation where striking is literally of immediate personal benefit to you and it affects political change. So it's like you you have you have to be almost lazy to not even consider it. Yeah. <laughs> or or you just don't give a shit. You're a nihilist and you think it's all over, but I don't. I think no. we're gonna win this thing. And you can't be if you've got kids, you can't be a nihilist. Oh yeah. no. I got a I got a one year old and another one on the way. Congrats. And I have founded you, you say a lot of things again you guys both have kids yeah we both have we two yeah you say a lot of things before you have kids but it don't doesn't really come home it's until true. you have them i actually i don't know if i'm gonna see the day and i don't i don't want to say i don't care i really want to but like i genuinely am in a state in my life right now where i'm like i'm fighting for the future i look at her and i'm like oh you're not you are not going to be had in this world. You're not, I'm not going to let you be a slave. I'm not going to let you be in poverty. Like I'm going to fight for your future. It's a very motivating thing. Um, yeah. Note to listeners, don't have kids because you want to be motivated. <laughs> Make sure you're ready for kids. Yeah. Um, they're a disaster in many other ways. Completely <laughs> fuck your life up in the most <laughs> like, delightful way possible. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, very it's a true. huge change. Make sure you're ready financially and emotionally. Um, but, but like they do, they, it brings it all home. Like we need to fix this for them. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I have two, I I have two closing thoughts from this. Just there's so much mind blowing shit. You've said in this episode, I don't even know where to start. Um, it's going to take me some time to digest some of the things you explored. You need to write a fucking book. I know you're busy, but you need to write a book. And then audience, you need to run a fucking Bitcoin node. Those are my two closers before we hand it off, unless Josh has something he wants to throw in. Here. Nope, nope. I just wanted to slip that Galt's Gulch comment in and I'm good to go. Matt, we're going to have you on again, dude, but close us out here. How do you want to hand off Start9, Embassy, platforms yours here as we end? Yeah, I'll, I'll dovetail off of what you just said real quick, um, which is you know you need to run a Bitcoin node. And I want to make it clear to everyone listening here that Start9's Embassy OS, which is the real heart of what we are doing here, is, as I mentioned earlier, it's an operating system. Um, the source code is published on GitHub. You can download Embassy OS for free and install it on your own Raspberry Pi in about a couple days' time. We're right on the verge of a massive release right now. You will be able to install Embassy OS on your old laptop, your old mini PC, your old desktop. Very cool. Right? You don't need to buy anything from us. If you want to, it's going to be super convenient. We appreciate the support. Uh, it's how we survive. We know eventually we'll sell plenty of devices, so we're not worried about it. But if you are on the other side of the world and you have an old PC that is adequately powered and you just want to take back your digital sovereignty, we are still welcoming you. Please go download it, run it. It's a lot easier than you think it's going to be. I promise you, it you're going to go through the setup process and go, wow, that actually wasn't bad at all. And the benefits are immediate. And um, yeah, just just do it. Don't, like, don't, you don't have to do it all. This is something we've run into a lot with our customers. They're like, red, they hesitate to take the plunge because they think it is a full blown all or nothing plunge that they have to like rid themselves of third parties in their digital life or not. You can do one little thing. 
whether it's just running a password manager or just self-hosting your own files or just taking your messaging with your family back or running a Bitcoin node or a Lightning node, just do one. And then when you're ready, when you have a spare weekend and you're feeling motivated, do the next one. And then over the course of a couple of years, you'll look back and realize that you didn't really need Google and Apple, that you are independent and self-sufficient and saving money and free from hacks and in unstoppable. Um, so just get started. We have a wonderful community. I don't just mean Start9, the official kind of team. I mean like our community is badass. They are extremely passionate, extremely uh, capable and knowledgeable, and very, very welcoming and active. If you are hesitating at all because you feel like you're on your own, join our Telegram chat, join our Matrix chat, email me, DM me, I don't care. We will hold your hand and get you there, but we will not do it for you. We will teach you to fish, we will not give you fish, and you'll be surprised at how easy it is to fish. Thanks for coming on, Matt. It's right. a blast. It was a pleasure. All right, Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.